From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but not today. I'm Angie Cuero. In fact, I'm in for a couple shows, if you will have me. There's someone in the White House who seems to care even more about Twitter than the toddler-in-chief himself. Later this hour, I'm bringing you a piece of tape, as we still call it in the business, of a deputy assistant to the president who called up a complete stranger and berated him for over 20 minutes about what that guy said about him on Twitter. Even pressing for a meeting about it. The most important thing on our plate these days? No, not with CPAC going completely around the bend. In fact, we're going to have a live report from CPAC in just a moment. But yeah, the thing about Twitter and the thing about berating that poor stranger, who, by the way, happened to record the call... It tells us a lot about the mentality in full reign in what used to be the center of at least semi-sane power in America. So yeah, I'm going to bring that to you. But now to the circus that is CPAC, the most feasible working theory about this year's conservative political action conference, is that all the heavy hitters got together and said, let's do Alice in Wonderland as presented by the crew of Monty Python. Nothing we say will make any sense. Everything we say will be a clear refutation of reality as any sane person would view it. So let's go crazy. Yeah, they started right at the top with American Conservative Union Executive Director Dan Schneider. Now, you got to feel sorry for this guy. This is the first CPAC under a presidency whose cast and crew is increasingly indistinguishable from your average fascist dictatorship. A White House that's just given press credentials to Jim Hoft of the ultra-conservative mouthpiece Gateway Pundit. Jim Hoft, who stood at the press lectern and flashed the Pepe the Frog hand signal. In case that was too subtle, he tweeted a picture of that, and he included the hashtag Pepe in his tweet about it. That is who is inside the walls of the White House right now. And with their precious keynote speaker Milo suddenly booted to the streets, the powers of CPAC couldn't get away with ignoring the rise of the alt-right in its own ranks. So now how are they going to address that? You don't have to guess. You would never come up anyway with something as outlandish as what they actually did. So let's, as we say, go to the tape where Schneider frantically pulls the green curtain around himself and claims he's not in there. There is a sinister organization that is trying to worm its way in into our ranks. Just a few years ago, this hate-filled, 
left-wing fascist group hijacked the very term alt-right. That term alt-right, it, it has been used for a long time in a very good and normal way. But this group has hijacked it, hijacked the term. And they did it intentionally because they want to deceive the media and they want to deceive you all about what they stand for so they can try to become normalized. And we must not allow them to be normalized. They are not part of us. They stole the term specifically to confuse us. We know who these people are. They met just a couple months ago in Washington, DC to spew their hatred and make their Heil Hitler salutes. They are anti-Semites. They are racists. They are sexists. They hate the Constitution. They hate free markets. They hate pluralism. They hate everything and they despise everything we believe in. They are not an, an extension of conservatism. They are nothing but garden variety left-wing fascists. Okay, you're not stupid. I'm not stupid. So let's not waste a great deal of time deconstructing what the hell we just heard. The claim that the alt-right is left-wing, that's not aimed at thinking people anyway. Unless you've been narcotized into chanting fake news every time reality pokes its nose near you, you already see what he did there. There's one little trick he pulled that maybe got past you. It's the kind of thing that only etymologists would have immediately thrown a flag on. Where did the word alt-right come from? Now, what we just heard him say is, that term's been used for a long time in a very good and normal way. Perfectly respectable origins, right? Now, that's easier to soothe the crowd with if they don't know that the man credited with creating the term alt-right is Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer, who advocates for a white homeland for the dispossessed white race, who wants peaceful ethnic cleansing to save the highly endangered European culture. Richard Spencer, whose post-election Hail Trump, Hail Our People, Hail Victory provoked Nazi salutes from his followers. Richard Spencer who until not too long ago was cheerfully embraced by Trumpians and a good chunk of the GOP. Alt-right was all right by them. But post-Milo, things are changing. Suddenly the writing is on the wall. A new Quinnipiac poll says not only are most Americans displeased with Trump, over half of them are embarrassed by him. So the sound you just heard rumbling under the words of Dan Schneider was the sound of Richard Spencer, former beloved, of Milo, former embraced model bad boy, of the alt-right, former source of fervid fans, all going under the wheels of the CPAC bus right there. I don't care if this guy has the oratorical skills of Demosthenes. Anybody who's paying any honest attention is not going to buy this. But enough from my outside view of CPAC. We're going to get an inside view of CPAC. And we've got on the phone Peter Montgomery, senior fellow with Right Wing Watch. Peter, as to what's happening in front of your face, I understand that you're trying to get into a Pence session, and that's probably not going to happen. 
Well, the pen session is a little later this evening, but the security that they are setting up for it is keeping people from getting to the afternoon uh, workout sessions, breakout sessions. It's kind of a mess. Got it. Yeah, well, y- you can imagine. I, you know, there's so much coming out of CPAC so far that's been crazy. I was talking to our audience already about the alt-right comes from the left. Uh, there have also been stories coming out about, uh, I was about to say Ann Coulter, isn't that telling? Kellyanne Conway saying that women are essentially anti-women. Tell me what you've been witnessing there. Well, I think what we have been witnessing in the big picture is the total abdication of the conservative movement to the Trump administration. Now, there used to be uh, a number of principled conservatives who had problems with Trump or didn't like things about Trump. They are throwing that all aside and rushing into his arms. You know, Kellyanne Conway basically spent her time telling us that Trump is the most wonderful human being who's ever lived on the planet. That astonishing piece that you um, talked about of, of Dan Schneider from the ACAU, ACU saying that uh, the alt-right was somehow a creation of the left. You know, I mean, the the American (laughs) Conservative Union is trying to distance itself from the alt-right, and they put Dan Schneider out there to criticize it. And then three hours later, they've got Steve Bannon being interviewed on the main stage by Matt Schlapp, who's the chair of the American Conservative Union. And it was the total softball, the fluffiest interview you can imagine. Like, Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus, tell us how hard Donald Trump is working for the American people. Wow, that's a tough one. (laughs) They're really holding his feet to the fire. (laughs) Are you hearing, and I understand that there's the official line, what's coming from the stage, what's coming in the press releases. Amongst the people there, are you hearing any questioning of saying, no, the alt-right is not us. Next, we have Steve Bannon. Is anybody noting the contradiction? You know, I might not have been uh, talking to the right people or listening to the right conversations, but I haven't been hearing a lot of that. You know, um, it was uh, someone described that uh, pretty soon this was going to be considered TPAC as opposed to CPAC. Yeah. And uh, I think that's I think it's really true. You know, we also had Betsy DeVos on stage um, uh, giving her take on, you know, the evil education establishment, which is opposing her Another. uh you know, adoring, soft interview. I think this is really um, the conservative movement as a whole, completely uh, joining ranks behind uh, behind the Trump administration. The one um, little bit of dissent I heard was actually from two transgender women who were bravely standing outside the hall with signs saying they were proudly transgender conservatives and asserting their uh, place, their right to be here. And they were critical of the fact that the uh, administration rolled back protections for transgender students last night. Did you see anyone reacting to them in passing? Oh, a lot of people were standing around to talk to them. I think a lot of people were really curious and very surprised. It's, uh, you know, it's not what most people expect to see here. Yeah, and did you have a chance to talk to them about why they felt it was still to their benefit to support Trump? You know, they were not supporting Trump as much as they described themselves as conservatives. You know, it's kind of the way that I, as a gay man, I feel about gay Republicans. You know, for the most part, I just, I don't get it. Yeah. But these, um, you know, they said that they're small government, you know, people, and they don't, you know, while, um, uh, you know, they're unhappy with this particular thing that Trump has done, they still consider them some conservatives. 
and they they are here, they say, to try to change the minds of uh, other conservatives who've probably never met a transgender person before. Got it. Now, I know that there are breakout groups happening. In the outside, you know, from, from the mainstream news, we usually hear about the high-profile ones, Steve Bannon talking or Kellyanne Conway talking. What are at least some of the titles, if not the content, of the breakout sessions that maybe we should know about but aren't hearing about? Well, one of the breakout sessions I went to this morning uh, was about climate change. And it was uh, pretty astonishing. You know, they were saying not only uh, are people who are worried about climate scientists wrong, but they're evil. And that the whole notion that um, humans are contributing to climate change is the biggest scientific scam ever. It's been um, carried out by Marxist watermelons. Oh, a new term Lord. for me, a, wa- <laughs> a watermelon being a person who is green on the outside and red on the inside, and that the whole climate change uh, movement is just an effort to destroy Western economies. So that was from a panel brought to you by the uh, uh, coal and oil industry, basically. No, really? <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> shocked. Yeah, no kidding. Do you see any topics there that are being discussed, either officially or off to the side, where people do seem to have areas of dissent, even if it's a conservative view against another conservative view, or is this just essentially a, a grouping where people get together, pat each other on the back, say, yeah, we're all right, and then they all go home? Well, you know, I think that one of the places where you probably do have more of a diversity of opinion here is on some of the social issues. You know, one of the big sponsors of of CPAC is the Heritage Foundation, mm-hmm. which is, you know, aggressively anti-gay, aggressively anti-equality for LGBT people. But, you know, CPAC is also a very young conference. There are a lot of young people here who tend to, I think, be more libertarian-leading. And I think among them, uh, they're not really concerned about uh, gay couples getting married. Um, and that's not talked. That difference is not talked about a lot. But it was alluded to from the stage a little bit that um, you know when Rens Priebus and Steve Bannon were up there, they acknowledged that within the room there were some different strains of libertarianism and conservatism, but that you know we all needed to rally uh, rally around to support Trump and and the movement. Do you get the sense any other portion of CPAC is devoted toward changing minds, persuading people, or is it essentially a self-bolstering event? Oh, this is a this is a cheerleading event. This is meant to rouse the troops. You know, the people who are here are pretty much true believers, and this is meant to uh, give them some training in doing politics. There's a lot of sessions training people how to, uh, you know, be more effective activists and lobbyists and candidates. Uh, and to, uh, you know, mobilize them to fight the evil left. Mm, got it. Do you hear any acknowledgement? And again, this is officially or unofficially, how bad some of the polls look as far as approval of Donald Trump and approval of what the Republicans Fake are doing? News. <laughs> Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Fake news. I had that feeling. Yeah, really. Fake nope. news. <laughs> so, yes, one... there is. There's a lot of disparagement a lot of disparagement of, of the media and the mainstream media. Um, what, what with you, you know, being... Which, is, which has been a project, which has been a project of the kind of groups that support this place for decades. You know, Trump's picking up on his attacks on the media and the political correctness. He's coming down a path that was cleared by, 
you know, Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and the Media Research Center and other organizations that have been telling conservatives for decades, you know, not to believe the liberal media, not to believe the mainstream media. So um, Trump is not the first person to do that. He has just picked it up and run with it. Now, one last question on your personal experience there, Peter. You're undoubtedly wearing, correct me if I'm wrong, you're undoubtedly wearing credentials that say you're with Right Wing Watch. What kind of reaction are you getting? You know, this is a huge conference. Uh, it's very easy to just be here and to not be noticed. It's not like uh, uh, I'm not really worried about anybody, you know, identifying and haranguing me. Uh, you know, they have a lot of press here. They're not, they're not ashamed of who they are or what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so for the most part, they're not, uh, they're not worried about people covering them. Peter, I really thank you. I know you've got yourself a busy schedule there, even if it's just trying to get into blocked areas because Pence is on his way. And thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate talking to you. Peter Montgomery, he's senior fellow with Right Wing Watch. You can find the work of Right Wing Watch at rightwingwatch.org. They are a project of the People for the American Way. A lot more to come here, so stick around. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is no longer a drill. It never was. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It is the broadcast. I'm Angie Cairo. Prediction by the end of this year, we will see more protests in the streets, in cities, large and small, at home and overseas than we have seen since the Vietnam War. Last week, sitting in for Brad and Des, I told you about an interview I had with two very practiced, wise hands in the art of protesting. I've got their conversation ready for you later this hour. Stick around. We'll swing into it in a few minutes. First, more in the news. The policies and positions coming out of Trumpco are consistently alarming. We need to keep paying attention to the people they are coming from. Reaction against anti-government sentiment and action can get very, very personal. February 22nd, 1943, schoolgirl Sophie Schell was killed because she was leading student resistance against Hitler. We are not there yet. I'm not saying we're there yet. With luck, we will never be there. But we do have people working with Trump who don't seem entirely balanced when it comes to criticism of individual citizens. This is a weird and disturbing instance. Let's go to Newsweek for this. They say... An embattled White House terrorism advisor whose academic credentials have come under widespread fire telephoned one of his main critics at home Tuesday night and threatened legal action against him, Newsweek has learned. Sebastian Gorka, whose views on Islam have been widely labeled extremists, called noted terrorism expert Michael Smith in South Carolina and expressed dismay that Smith had been criticizing him on Twitter. According to a recording of the call provided to Newsweek, Smith said, I was like a deer in the headlights. This is a Republican, mind you, who has advised congressional committees in the use of social media by ISIS. He told Newsweek, I thought it was a prank. 
he began by threatening me with a lawsuit. So let's listen to these first few minutes of the call. Now, mind you, I'm giving you four to five minutes at most of a 20-minute-plus phone call from a White House deputy assistant, presumably paid by our taxes, who is attacking a citizen about his tweets. Just explain to me why you're putting those emails on a social media Twitter. Well, again... No, so, just ask the question. So, to answer the question... Uh-huh. Um, I was highlighting my concerns about the fact that you are working in the White House. And, but, but, but and when the, you're being connected to me by a National Security Council colleague, why would you react with your concerns when he's recommending you to me? How, how does that concern you? Why is that a reason of concern? I'm not so, I don't understand how Josh is connecting us is, is a problem for you. Is it because... I didn't get back to you fast enough? Is that the reason? I mean, have we ever met? No, we have not, as a matter of fact. So, so why, why, why is there such vitriol pumping out of you constantly, every day now? It's, it's so strange. I look at your Twitter feed you know, once or twice a day, and again, it's half a dozen tweets about me, and I've never met you. Wow, are, are, you, are you defeating jihad by monitoring or trolling my Twitter feed? I mean, honestly... To begin, oh my God. You, okay. you've if that's, called. If that's your, if that's your explanation, you've, you've called. You've called as as a White House it. official. You have called an American citizen, and begun yes, the conversation very confrontationally by accusing me of animus towards you. Of which I've, I'm attempting to explain. There is no animus towards you. I believe that you so are a charlatan. A fake. Yes. Is not animus. That no. There, that, that's not. That I. No, I would submit to you. Tweets from your Twitter feed that are attacking my personal professional integrity is not animus. What is it? You're trying to be friendly with me? No, no. As a matter of fact, that's not the case at all. As I, I, would, I would submit to you that a majority of terrorism experts who have experience working with policymakers, which you do not until now, would agree that you are not an expert of level sufficient to be working in the White House with the president's inner circle. that's one man's opinion. A man who has a two-year-old TV clip into his Twitter feed and point, having to point out that he had an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal as your header. I mean, that's your qualifications. You don't have a, a TV hit from more than two years ago. I mean, isn't that peculiar that you're questioning my credentials and your last TV hit is two years ago? Actually, that's not to, true. That's you, that's you not true. Sebastian, Sebastian, what, what I'll do, what I'd be happy to do. This is your op-ed. I would be I mean, happy. Your qualifications. Who made you the arbiter of counterterrorism proficiency and policy relevance in the United States? Could you tell me who did that? Well, how about this, Sebastian? Why don't I share with you correspondence from members of Congress, which highlights I have been directly Fine. involved in the formulation Do of it. national security I love policy. It. Here's my email. You've got my email, right? Sebastian.l.org. And and so why don't why don't I why don't I add to that? Why don't I add to that a list? Mr. Smith, how about this? Why don't how about, no no you you've called me an American citizen whom you are working for and approached me in a very confrontational manner, okay, suggesting, suggesting, no, 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 let me finish, let me finish, let me finish. I invite you to the White House Thursday for a cup of coffee, and you can bring all your evidence about why you have problems with me, and we'll discuss it over a cup of coffee. How's that? How friendly an offer is that? 
Well, it would be friendly if you could give me two weeks because you've caught me in the middle of preparing for a speech uh, that I have to give okay. next week. All right, hang on. I'll open my calendar right now. Hold on, hold on. So two weeks from now, 28th is one week. Be better two yet, why don't, why don't we do this? How about, how about Wednesday the 8th? Why don't we do Wednesday this? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? Wednesday the 8th is open in the afternoon. How about a uh, 2 o'clock meeting at the White House. Does that work for you? Well, I would need to have specifics about who else will be in attendance, because if you're planning on bringing the White House legal counsel, I'd be happy to no, bring no, no, my no. own along. Just you and me. Because you've already threatened a lawsuit. You, you, I, no, no. If you really want to explain to me your problems, then let's just be the two of us in my office uh, in the White House complex. How's that? I will get back to you on it. I'll, I'll tentatively say yes. I'd be happy to meet you then. Newsweek finishes that story up with something that I'm sure broke Smith's heart. Quote, late Wednesday, Gorka withdrew his invitation, quote, given your statements for the latest attack piece and continued disparaging tweets. God, these people in tweets. Continued disparaging tweets against not only myself, but the administration and the president, Gorka said to Smith, consider your invitation to meet withdrawn. This would be really funny if this guy were not respected by and listened to by the leader of the free world. It's good to see people stand up to these folks. The Anne Frank Center is having none of Trump's parodies of condemnation of anti-Semitic groups. Parker Malloy put it this way for Upworthy. She wrote, on Tuesday, Trump traveled to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. There he finally, finally, address threats against the Jewish community. Quote, the anti-Semitic threats are targeting our Jewish community and community centers are horrible and are painful and a very sad reminder of the work that must still be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil, Trump said. This was somewhere around the time he was touting how big his margin of the electoral win he got in South Carolina. Go figure. But anyway, back to Malloy's story. The AFC is not letting Trump off the hook that easily, calling his statement a Band-Aid on the cancer of anti-Semitism that has infected his own administration. While Trump has now at least acknowledged the problem, he still hasn't said anything about how he plans to address it. So the AFC got on Twitter and said, Do not make us Jews settle for crumbs of condescension. What are you going to do about anti-Semitism in the White House? They tweeted out, Mr. President, your too little, too late acknowledgement of anti-Semitism today is not enough. That was posted by the Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect. Sean Spicer, of course, had to get in on this at his next press conference. He said, I think it's ironic, no matter how many times he talks about this, that it's never good enough. He doubled down on the group's remarks, saying, so I saw that statement. I wish they'd praise the president for his leadership in this area. Sean, Sean, Sean. He has to exhibit leadership before he gets praised for it. But I digress. Hopefully, he says, as time continues to go by, they recognize his commitment to civil rights, to voting rights, to equality for all Americans. Yes, perhaps if they are dropped on their heads, they will come to that realization. So then the Anne Frank Center's executive director showed up to talk about this on CNN, and they put him opposite conservative commentator Kaylee McGinney from The Hill. He was not having her tiresome pokes about Trump having Jews in the family. Some of my best friends are Jewish. 
And I, I've got to ask you straight on. So you think the president does not like Jews and is pre prejudiced against Jews. You think that about the president of the United States? You bet. And do you know wow. why? And wow is right, Kaylee. Do you know why? Does he hate his daughter? You, does he hate his You know his son what, Kaylee? You know what, Kaylee? I am tired of commentators like you from the right trotting out his daughter, trotting out his son-in-law as talking points against the president's anti-Semitism. They are Jewish, but that is not a talking point against anti-Semitism, and that is a disgrace. Let's, let's have your you, have you no, Listen, you, have you no ethics than to invoke and to invoke people's religion as a talking point? Let's make this a dialogue. That itself is okay. anti-Semitic. Let's Go make ahead, this Kim. a dialogue instead of a monologue. Do you think the president dislikes his daughter? Okay. You know, answer the question. You know answer, because you said he doesn't like Jews and his daughter. I'm under no obligation to answer a curveball question. Because you can't answer the question. Because it's a nonsensical answer. question based on nothing. So, of course, this morning, the fake news troops are obediently tut-tutting all this as a cry for relevance from the, quote, obscure center. You can always tell when that's the edict that has gone out for how to attack these stories. Tweets, stories, social media, they all say the obscure Anne Frank Center because I guess they hadn't heard of it or it's just a way to make them unimportant. If it's so obscure, you have to wonder why Trump and Spicer and their surrogates are in a full push against them. Hey, I'm keeping an eye on Standing Rock today. Uh, fires are still burning. Troops are still working to dislodge. The last of the water defenders protesting the pipeline project. I'm going to go fully into that tomorrow. We'll have somebody on the line to talk about that. As promised, on another front, Trump has turned his attention to a critical American security issue. Bathrooms. The uh, Washington Post kept us up not only on his revocation of Obama's protection for transgenders using the bathroom of their choice, but they're also following the case of a teen who's going to push against that. So let me head on over their site. Washington Post, the Trump administration Wednesday revoked federal guidelines specifying that transgender students have the right to use public restrooms that match their gender identity. Officials with the federal education and justice departments notified the U.S. Supreme Court the administration is ordering the nation's school to disregard memos from the Obama administration regarding transgender student rights. Because this is what really matters. The administration said it would not rely on prior interpretation of the law. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, of course, is behind that. This is an issue best solved at the state and local level. So over to the other story also, and, and kudos to Washington Post for staying on top of both of these, attorneys for a transgender teen who sued his school board for barring him from the boys' bathroom said that they plan to continue to press his case before SCOTUS despite that Trump administration move. Lawyers with the ACLU are representing 17-year-old Gavin Grimm. They say they believe federal laws barring discrimination on the basis of sex apply to transgender people regardless of the Trump administration's position on the matter. ACLU attorney Joshua Block said, if anything, the confusion caused by this recent action by the Department of Justice and the Department of Education only underscore the need for the Supreme Court to bring some clarity here. you got to wonder how this is going to play out. Because you know, with our eight of nine seats Supreme Court divided as it is, the ruling could go either way. If they can get this to the Supreme Court, 
before that seat is filled by Trump and his henchmen. This could go either way, and if it goes against Trump, we can prepare ourselves for the usual peppering with insults about how the Supreme Court is rogue, about how they don't understand the power of the presidency because laws don't apply to him, blah, blah, blah. But of course, the broadcast will be on top of that for you as it evolves. Coming up next on the broadcast, what is protest for and how is it best done? Critical blueprint material in this new age of hitting the streets again and again. Coming up next, I'm Angie Cuero. This is the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero. At GOP town halls, more and more citizens are demanding to be heard by their reps and senators, the people who won't take their phone calls anymore. They won't answer their emails. They won't answer the petitions. So these people are showing up with signs, with microphones, with megaphones, refusing to be moved, insisting on being heard. Trump is playing a very dangerous game of dismissing these people as paid protesters, as organs of the left, even though some of these people are publicly and credibly identifying as erstwhile Trump supporters. This is not a three-dimensional chess guy. This is not a guy who's doing something that clearly will have a benefit if he pulls it off right. It's just dumb. It's plain dumb to deny people the reality of their lived experience, of their very genuine fears, and their very real frustration of all the ways to deal with that and either convert or retain their support for you, I don't believe your legitimate may be the worst possible idea, may be the stupidest thing to come out of your mouth. Let's hope so, because I'm hearing interviews. NPR's had a couple of these lately. I'm hearing interviews with some very disillusioned Trump supporters, most of whom, of the ones I have heard, are not yet willing to say out loud, I no longer support him, but they're openly talking about disillusionment. They're openly talking about wondering whether he supports them anymore. They're openly concerned about losing health care coverage. Now, can you imagine them trying to say that to the man they voted for? And he says to them, you know, I don't believe you're real. I don't believe you're who you say you are. I don't believe you mean what you say you mean. I think you're paid to say this. Yeah, that's going to do him a world of good. But with all these protests and with all the others that are underway and pending, protests for science, protests for women and protests for, for climate, protests for this, that and the other, what is the goal? We hear a lot that marches are useless unless they involve specific demands, that protesting without a clear agenda forward, without a blueprint, doesn't actually help, that venting has its limits. And those seem like, you know, not only really legitimate concerns, but they're frequently aired ones. So 
I had a conversation not too long ago with two very experienced civil rights hands. Sheila Thomas knows protests from both the civic and the legal side. In fact, she once subpoenaed Bill Clinton in a case about voter suppression. So she's got the chops. Clay Carson, you may recognize his name. Dr. Claiborne Carson is the founder and director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford. He marched right beside his dear friend, John Lewis, and MLK in the civil rights battles. So here's a part of my conversation with them. Let's talk about the protests that are out there now, what the goal is, and how to achieve them. One of the things I've heard from a number of quarters is that people are getting out in the streets or they're getting on social media and essentially they're venting or it's organized venting. But there doesn't seem, to the people who are questioning this, there doesn't seem to be a concrete goal. Are we talking about getting Donald Trump out and having a President Pence? Are we talking about having, you know, the White House shut down? What, what are we talking about here? And, and I want to ask you both about how critical it is to efficient and worthwhile protest to have a specific goal, or does it have its own value to get out there and let discontent be known, period? Well, I, I think that you're always going to have a di division between what I would call instrumental protest, or the idea is to achieve a specific goal, and expressive protest, which is to express your discontent with whatever is happening. And I think for most of us, there's always a mixture of those two things. Uh, you know, after the invasion of Cambodia or after, you know, some other egregious act, my first response would be expressive. You know, I, I just want to let people know I disagreed with that. And oftentimes that is the, the thing that brings the most people together, is that if you share that kind of expressive desire then you're going to join the protest. Now, hopefully in every social movement, that gets translated eventually into something specific about, you know, yes, we can agree this would be an appropriate response mm -hmm. on the part of whoever we're ticked off about. And I think that within the civil rights struggle of the 1960s, you had different institutions. You had the young people who I identified with in Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee we were very good at expressive. The NAACP might have been much better at instrumental, you know, because they had the ability to translate freedom now into the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have known where to start writing a law. So in the best case situation, you have these groups working together. I've always depended on, on that, particularly when I was younger. I was arrested a few times, and, and I remember, you know, for example, passing out anti-war leaflets at the Los Angeles train station. They arrested me, charged me with vagrancy of all things. <laughs> well, fortunately, there was an ACLU around. And take it to court <laughs> several years later, when it doesn't really affect me anymore, um, because I've already been to jail, finally getting a... California Supreme Court decision saying that that was illegal and that you can't use the pretext of vagrancy in a train station in order to stop free speech, even though it was private property. Mm -hmm. That's the way um, I would hope that, for example, Black Lives Matter 
that some of that is just the initial response. You see a video of an unarmed black person being killed by a policeman. The anger, frustration that it continues comes out. You go and you express that. And that's great because if they hadn't done that, these killings would just keep going on with no one paying any mind to it. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't like Michael Brown was the first black person to be have this happen. It had been happening for 50 years earlier than that, you know, because that's what started the riot in Los Angeles. I would argue it's been happening since slavery. To me, yeah, it's, 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 it's always it's, been it's happening. Ju- right. It's, it, it's, it's the only thing it's that's really different <laughs> is that now you have some young people reminding us who are older, you've taken your eyes off the prize. Mm-hmm. You know? why, why are these things still happening? And I think that that was all positive. Now, how that gets translated into public policy, you know, we're still searching for that. What's interesting because um, my sense of most movements throughout history has been it's usually started by people who didn't know they were starting movements. And I think that when you were talking about the the movement for Black Lives and the Black Lives Matters movement, my understanding is it started with videos of of seeing what was happening, which, mm-hmm. as you said, were happening had been happening for I'd say centuries. Uh, but we didn't have video to show it because people would deny it was happening. But it seems to me that at this point, things have shifted. There is a goal in mind here. And we've started to see it in terms of what's happening around the Affordable Care Act. People are going crazy about that now, as well as the effort around uh, Jeff Sessions. If you can't be a federal judge, how can you be the attorney general? That would be the question. (laughs) So I I think that the reason for these protests is to put the government on notice. We're not going to allow this to happen. And the people have much more power than they think they have. So many people don't are now just beginning to understand how the government works. I lived in D.C. I went to law school in D.C. I understand how the government works. I understand that the various cabinet positions are important. Many people in our country have no understanding of that. They're now starting to see that after the fact. But all of those things matter. And if it, the, the, even the, the Supreme Court can be influenced. I mean, the, the decisions on affirmative action, if people were not organized around that, I don't believe the court would have done what it did. If people had not been organized around uh, Affordable Care Act, I can't believe that the ju- Chief Justice John Roberts would have voted the way that he did. <laughs> but people underestimate their power. So this time, people understand there's, as people are calling it, the resistance. I don't really use that word. I really think of it as being a, a strategic, organized way of speaking out and making it clear this is not going to happen on our watch. We're not going to allow this to happen. Uh, maybe I'm overly optimistic cause, because we've been down this road before. For me, I was 19 years old when Ronald Reagan was, a, was elected. And I lived in D.C. for part of that time. And so I, 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 can have, I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. But if people are speaking out, it's going to make a difference, just as it did during the Civil Rights Movement, just as it's done in other times. And part of that is, for example, the Movement for Black Lives has now got this whole strategy together. It has a, has a, a paper out where it talks about education. It talks about economic justice. It talks about all of those things. It, because after a while, you can't just be expressive. You've got to have a plan. Mm-hmm. You have to have goals. You have to set intentions. Most people want to know, what can I do? 
They want to know, what can I do? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing is we have to call our Congress people and let them know what we want. And that means across the country we have to do that. That's how our government works. But oftentimes we have not taken advantage of that. The truth is, is conservatives have been really good at it. Mm -hmm. We have not. Well, let's talk about, again, the limits with some of these. A number of people were saying yesterday that Paul Ryan was no longer taking, you know, he turned off his fax, the phones line, phone lines were on constant busy, he was turning away petitions, and as a response, some people were publishing his home phone. What do you guys think of that? I think that there's always a line. We all want a civil society. We want to be treated with respect. But that works both ways. You know, I, I think that um, right now we're, we're in a situation where you have a black president who was treated with disrespect from the moment he came into office, and particularly by Donald Trump, who questioned the legitimacy of his election. Do you treat Donald Trump's election as legitimate? I can see an argument if Martin Luther King was here, he would probably say civility is is got to be part of it. I could also see the argument that you're not adequately dealing with the seriousness of the situation. I mean, we, we live in a nation that was born with a revolution. We should not be surprised when people engage in acts of disruption, civil disobedience. We wouldn't be here without a revolution. And we've had a civil war. Now, I'm not at all arguing that we should go back to the Civil War. I'm ready. Or have, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not quite ready to say we're ready for a re revolution. But I think that we, we need to make an assessment of what needs to be done in the present moment. My friend John Lewis, who said that he's an illegitimate president, I couldn't agree more. He didn't get the majority of the votes. That in itself undermines the legitimacy of it. He is president because of an undemocratic aspect of our electoral system. And to give him the same respect that you would have for a person who did win the majority of the votes and did so without help from a foreign government and did so without a campaign that lowered the level of political discourse to a point that I've never seen it in my lifetime, I hope that we get that message across that the way you became president was unacceptable. And you will pay a political price for that. And it won't be forgotten. Well, the other thing I would add to that is that um, the thing that doesn't often get talked about, which is undemocratic, is voter suppression. And the fact that the votes in crucial states were suppressed. And there's no question about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were laws, there were legislation that was passed, and it was meant to suppress the vote of particular groups of people who typically vote Democratic. North Carolina was probably the most egregious example of that. But there were many other places that did the. I mean, one of the things that I don't didn't include in my background was is that I've done voting rights cases. I actually was involved in a case where we sued then Governor Bill Clinton in Arkansas um, because of illegal practices that wouldn't allow black people to be elected, and he was a the star witness in our trial. So, with that hat on, 
to me, that's another aspect to this, which is undemocratic, but we haven't been talking about it. Mm-hmm. So that's another aspect of, of people coming together. One of the things that I wanted to mention was that uh, Reverend William Barber, in, um, and I'm sure if you saw the Democratic National Convention, you saw him. Um, he's behind he, Moral Mondays. Right, he's behind Moral Mondays. But one of the things that he says, which I, which I really agree with, is that even if you don't agree on everything, there's some basic things that everybody agrees on. They want like their basic needs met. They want to be treated humanely. Those are things that people often can come together on. You know, if we could get to that, I think that that would be really helpful. There will be things that we wouldn't necessarily agree on. But if we could agree on some of those basic things, I think that it, it would go a long way to dealing with some of the conflicts that you had discussed earlier about the different groups, mm-hmm. because I've read about some of those things as well. Uh, but I also feel like those are the wounds of our country that we just don't deal with. You know, we, we, we still have not dealt with and reconciled our history. Right. The exclusion of many groups of people who are still dealing with the effects of those, that exclusion. I, I do want to touch on the role of civility that Clay brought up, because you and I were talking, Sheila, before the show. We mm-hmm. both agree that times are not normal. Mm-hmm. There are things that apply in normal times that do not apply now because of the level of danger that we're up against and how perverse everything has turned. Civility, I think, is one of those things that is normally expected. I want to follow up with you, Sheila, on, on whether you think civility is called for amongst the protests now. I don't know what civility means, I mean, it seems to me that civility is in the eye of the beholder. Because one of the things that I feel, uh, what I've noticed is, is that there's a double standard. Because is Donald Trump being civil? And I don't think that that's normal. Mm-hmm. But on some level, there's an effort in our society for some people to normalize that behavior. Yes. And so the question is, is what does civility mean? But one of the things that really irritates me about Martin Luther King's the whole thing around Martin Luther King's weekend is that there are only certain parts of his speeches that are discussed. I mean, he spoke about some of the very things that Black Lives Matter, the movement for black lives, people out in the streets in Oakland, some of those very same things people are talking about now. He was talking about too, but those things have just somehow disappeared They've from our cleansed. public discourse. <laughs> They've been cleansed. So, right, I mean, right, exactly. And, and, and he was being civil then when he was talking about those things, but now it's almost if, as if we talk about these issues in a very graphic and specific way, that's not being civil. Mm-hmm. Now, anything that has to do with violence is problematic. That's not civil to me. But I feel like, to me, that civility has a double standard based on who's engaging in the conduct. Well, one one thing that I find is that there's a selective memory, obviously, with respect to Martin Luther King, and, and he's seen through the lens of the I Have a Dream speech all of the time. And just think, uh, you know, we, we had an Occupy movement in this country uh, a few years back. What if one of the leaders of the Occupy movement had said, instead of occupying uh, the space in front of Oakland City Hall. Let's go to Washington and occupy the National Mall. And not just do it overnight, but do it until Congress acts on the issues that we care about, like poverty. That's what Martin Luther King was doing at the end of his life. He was leading a movement to go and occupy the National Mall and stay there until Congress dealt with the issue of poverty. So I think we need to be very clear when we kind of have this, and it gets to the question of civility. You know, you put 
Martin Luther King in one category. Over here, there's these crazies who, who go around disrupting things. He was willing to disrupt in what I think is a civil way. He was not willing to use violence to achieve his ends, but he was certainly willing to disrupt the normal order of things. I happened to be giving a, a, a speech uh, over in uh, Hayward, and coming back from the speech, I was thinking about taking the Dunbarton or the San Mateo Bridge. Fortunately, I took the Dunbarton Bridge because my students, uh, more than 60 of them, were sitting down on the San Mateo Bridge and held up traffic for <laughs> uh, and And I remember in, in, that, in that speech, I was, I was kind of defending student disruption. And I, I realized the irony that I would not have been able to get back home because my students were out there stopping the bridge, which is probably not the tactic I would have recommended to them. You know, free speech is something you do pay a price for it. You know, the, the, the safety cost, the police cost, the inconvenience sometimes when you, when you go and there's a large demonstration and you can't get to your work, um, or I can't get to my class, uh, when the president of Stanford can't get to his office because students are occupying it. You know, all of those things are that tension of where, where are the limits? And I don't think they can ever be precisely defined. I think a lot of it depends on the issue, the time, the alternatives available to the people. Circumstances. Martin Luther King describes riots as the voice of the unheard. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. My guests, Claiborne Carson, who is with the MLK Research and Education Institute at Stanford, and Sheila Thomas, who is an adjunct faculty member at Golden Gate University School of Law. Really good question from the audience, and it actually dovetails with something that's been running in the press for the last couple of days. There were two articles that showed up, both in the New York Times, if memory serves. One was a woman who said, I so regret voting for Trump because I never expected him to go after women's rights. And another one came out today and said, I'm already regretting my vote for Trump because he's not going to go after Hillary, and he said he would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the question from the audience member, a lot of people who voted for Obama voted for Trump. What kind of efforts are most effective at showing those voters, probably not part of the basket of deplorables, how wrong they were to put Trump in office? Is that the direction we want to go, to show them they were wrong? I think... You do want to do that. I, I think that uh, the Democratic Party has not ever really taken it on itself to deal with the issue that you just outlined. I remember Jesse Jackson when he raised the issue of the Democratic Party has two choices, and this was during the 1980s. They can go after the Reagan Democrats and try to get them back, or they can go and expand the black and minority vote and get them into the party and get them mobilized. And either one of those can get you victory. What Bill Clinton did when he came in was take, let's get the Reagan Democrats. Let's go after welfare. Let's go after uh, crime. Let's go after the things that will get the, the Reagan vote back into the Democratic Party. That was a strategic decision that he made. So we need to do a lot of things in order to bring about a more just and democratic society. And I think that 
protest is one of the means of doing it. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Sheila? Yeah, well, you know, I was, I was just going to follow up with the, the voter suppression that I mentioned earlier. I mean, it's, di- it's a direct response to the effectiveness of the coalition that President Obama created to get him elected twice. That, that coalition worked. He did not get the majority white vote when he, both times he didn't, but he had a sufficient, where there, there was a diverse coalition that he created. And as a result of that, we then got what we got. We're all just across, it's not, a, it's not surprising that Wisconsin, where Congress, uh, the Speaker of the House is from, was one of the first states to pass a voter suppression bill. And it, it just seems to me that in looking at this, that it, we, we have to put it into that context mm-hmm. and, and, and see that it did work. What um, Reverend Jackson said did work, but it didn't work this time because that coalition in some ways fell apart for a variety of reasons. You can hear the complete one-hour conversation with Sheila Thomas and Clay Carson on my own show's website. That is indeepradio.com. And that is a wrap on today's broadcast. I'm coming back to you tomorrow. We'll get the latest on Standing Rock and who knows what other curves our lovely and talented Trump administration will throw at us. All the more reason to say, good luck, world. Oh,